0: Again, our text this morning is Luke chapter 24, starting at verse 13 and going down to verse 33. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in deed and word before God and all the people. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. And so he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and he blessed and broke it and he gave it to them, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. Uh, this weekend I, I read an, uh, an article, an essay about an artist named Wolfgang Leib. Now, I'm probably mispronouncing misunder- mis, uh, his last name, but Wolfgang Leib. And I opened up this journal and saw a, a photograph of one of his uh, works of art. And it caught my eye because in this picture, it's this cavernous um, warehouse, gray with these windows with light filtering in from the second story. And then in the middle of the floor of this warehouse is, a, um, is this huge yellow uh, square, and it's about 10 feet by 10 feet. So this huge square. And my first thought is, I really don't get modern art. <laughs> so there's this, this big yellow square in the middle of it. And it caught my eye, but, but not for long. But, but, but I did stop to actually read the article about this artist. And, and I was intrigued. As I read this article, it talks about this guy and the, the mediums with which he would uh, do his artwork. One of which is hazelnut pollen. Okay? So this huge yellow square was made out of hazelnut pollen. And every hazelnut season, whenever that happens in Germany, he goes and collects hazelnut pollen and works day in and day out, collecting and refining this. And he goes around and, and puts it in places like warehouses and cathedrals and art galleries for people to watch it. And the guy who wrote the article said, when you walk in to see one of these displays, that you are, um, that you are immersed in yellow. You, you see the color, you, s- you smell it. It's, it's, it, it comes into all your senses. It's, it's almost this sort of performance art because the art doesn't last very long. He sets it up in a gallery, sets it up in a warehouse, and people come and look at it, and then they have to clean it all up. But the writer, the article said that when people walk into one of these spaces, they suddenly fall silent. They're very quiet. And they walk very carefully around it because they get this sense that it could be so easily disturbed. And there's something about the experience of, of being around one of these art performances that just doesn't come across in a photograph. I mean, you see, this, you see the shockiness of this yellow square, but, but you can't really see what it is like to see it to really see it in person. If you've ever studied art maybe in an art history class in college you look at these slides of these great works of art but if you've ever seen one of those in a museum you know that the picture doesn't do anything. It doesn't come close to doing justice of actually being in the presence of the thing itself. Okay, switch gears for a second. We're here this morning, know it or not, because Easter stands at the heart of the Christian faith. Okay, and a lot of us don't really get this because we, we like Christmas. We like the presents. We like the image of the baby in the manger. That, that just feels a lot easier to embrace sometimes than Easter. But Easter stands at the heart of the Christian faith. Jesus Christ, Son of God, come in the flesh, crucified, risen from the dead, the resurrected Jesus. This stands at the very center. But it leaves us asking this question this morning. What difference does a resurrection really make? When we read a story like this in Luke 24 and we think, maybe some of us, what what does it matter? Why does this matter for us? And Luke thinks that the resurrection changes everything. It changes everything. It's a little hard to get our arms around everything. Um, Here's what Luke does for us. He tells us the story of two followers of Jesus. And he tells us about how the resurrection changes everything for the two of them. Okay? And the passage we're looking at this morning, it tells actually two versions of the Easter story. There's the version the disciples tell, and there's the version that Jesus tells. And what we're going to see this morning is that to really understand Easter, to really be changed by Jesus' resurrection, we have to see it firsthand. Just like Labe's art must be experienced firsthand. You can't just see it in a picture. This passage shows us the way that we experience and understand the resurrection firsthand is to let Jesus tell us the story. So we're going to look at this morning, this story and Jesus telling us the story. First, though, we see the version of the disciples. The disciples tell the story to us first. Look with me at verses 13 through uh, 24. They're traveling on their way to Emmaus. Uh, A town about seven miles outside of Jerusalem. Okay, why is that important? Not so much because of where they are going, but where they are leaving. Okay, these disciples are going in the wrong direction. Jesus has just been crucified a couple days before in Jerusalem, and they are now leaving Jerusalem, headed in the wrong direction, completely, absolutely disillusioned by what's happened. Okay, they're on the road, they're discussing what's happened, and Jesus draws near to them and engages them in conversation. Now verse 16 says that their eyes were kept from recognizing them. Okay, we don't really know what keeps their eyes from recognizing them. Did Jesus somehow um, obscure them, obscure himself so they couldn't recognize him? Possibly. Or maybe part of what's going on is these men are so disillusioned that they don't recognize Jesus when they see him. But either way, Jesus is hidden from their eyes. And Jesus comes up and he asks him this ironic question. He says, Jesus, the one that's the very center of the story, says, what, what happened? What are, what are you all talking about? And they go on and tell the story of Jesus to Jesus. Okay, now just imagine how strange that would be. Imagine being in a situation that somehow construct one where maybe you're around a good friend of yours who doesn't recognize you for whatever reason. And you say, tell me about. And you name your own name. And they go on to tell you the story of you, not knowing that it's you they're talking to. These guys are telling Jesus who Jesus is. And let's see what they say. They first say, first, his name's Jesus. He's from Nazareth. He's a man. He's a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. What do they call him? They call him a prophet. And he is. Speaks the word of God to them, brings it to them, heals, does these powerful, amazing, miraculous works. They are right, but they don't say the whole deal. Remember where we were a week ago on Palm Sunday when these two disciples, along with the whole crowd of disciples, are walking into Jerusalem, throwing their cloaks in front of Jesus, proclaiming, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But now, a week later, a crucifixion later, what are they saying? Jesus was a prophet, mighty in word and deed. They go on and say, what happens? The chief priests, the rulers delivered him up, crucified him. In verse 21, this telling statement, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They were hoping. What's implied here is they are no longer hoping. Okay, now imagine the weight of the disappointment they are carrying. We don't know how long these guys have been following Jesus. Jesus has had a public ministry of about three years. Maybe they've been with him the whole time. Three years of their lives devoted to following this man that they thought was the Messiah, and now he's dead. Imagine the disappointment. My wife, Elizabeth, grew up watching the University of North Carolina men's basketball team. Uh, Elizabeth, we sometimes say, is uh, the son my father-in-law never had. And... (laughs) when she was growing up he would give her basketball tickets for her birthday. For her, for her birthday. And they traveled two and a half hours from Charlotte to Chapel Hill and they'd watch Carolina play. And Liz tells me that she remembers in 1982 when she was a young girl, University of North Carolina winning the NCAA tournament. Okay? They beat uh, Georgetown to win the finals. Ironically lost to Georgetown this year. We're trying to get over that in my house. They beat Georgetown, they win the title, and Elizabeth said it was this just magical. For the next year, she's thinking about her Team Carolina. She's got, she's got uh, posters in her room of the team. You know, she's got um, James Worthy, the rest of the guys there on her wall, her heroes, and the next year, the returning champions. What are they gonna do this season? 1983, the team loses in the fourth round to the University of Georgia. And Elizabeth is completely devastated. Ten-year-old child, somewhere around there, weeping. My team has lost. Okay, now I'm I'm happy to report that slowly she did recover from this. (laughs) If you bring it up to her, though, it's going to be a tender moment, so be careful. Her basketball team crushed. She's crushed. But she gets better. Now, these two disciples are in the middle of so much more a crushing defeat. The one they have followed, the one they have staked their very lives on is now dead and gone. And everything has just uh, dissipated in front of their eyes. Their hope is extinguished. And when you read this, you hear their despair. But then there's this strange story they tell in verse 22 through 24. They say, in spite of this, something weird happened this morning. We got up this morning, and some of our women went to the tomb, and the tomb was empty. And not only was the tomb empty, a couple angels showed up and said that Jesus is risen. And then they came back and told us about it. Now, if you want to see firsthand the reception they got, if you flip back to verse 11 of this chapter, these two women come back to the disciples, and what did the disciples say? But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. They didn't believe it. Two more of the disciples go running to the tomb. They don't find Jesus either, and they come back scratching their heads. All this happens this morning, and these two guys still leave Jerusalem headed for Emmaus. And they're still crushed that all their hopes have fallen. And But they don't even know what to do with this strange piece of there's an empty tomb. But what's interesting to me is it doesn't really grab their imagination more than that. It's like, oh, yeah, and the tomb was emptied, but we're still hopeless. Um, because what's happened, they have interpreted what's gone on. Okay, they've looked at all the facts and they've drawn some conclusions about what must have happened. Jesus was mighty, he was a prophet, he did all these amazing things, but now he is dead and he's not the one that we thought he was. It's like doing um, division when you're in elementary school and you're first learning how to do long division. And it's supposed to divide evenly, but somehow, mysteriously, you come up with this remainder. You know you're not supposed to have a remainder, so you choose to sort of ignore it. (laughs) These guys look at the story, and there's this piece left over, this remainder. They don't know what to do with it, but they don't put any weight on it. Now, what's interesting is these guys still have a story to tell. They still have a story to tell about Jesus, this prophet who's mighty indeed before God and all his people. Jesus, who is a great moral teacher who gave this beautiful example of a shining moral life. They've got a picture of Jesus, a social activist, who was deeply and rightly concerned about justice and mercy and the care of the poor, care for the marginalized in society. They still have a story to tell. The thing is, it's not the whole story. And so in the end, it's not the true story. It's not really the gospel. It's not the radical kind of good news that we so badly need and which Jesus came to bring. Because it's missing something vital at its heart, the resurrection. And so the story of Jesus without the resurrection becomes a completely different story. So we have them telling the story. Second thing we see is we see Jesus telling the story, verses 25 through 31. First thing he does when he begins to speak to them is he challenges their telling of the story. Listen to what he says to them. O oh, foolish ones, O oh, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have said. Foolish ones, you are not thinking clearly and slow of heart. It's an interesting phrase. It means more than simply you're slow of mind. Okay, in scripture when they, when people in the first century speak of their heart, they're talking about the totality totality of their being. They're talking about what makes you you. Okay? Slow of heart to believe. Slow to give yourself to this. Jesus is rebuking them. But if you notice, it's a rebuke with hope. Because it's one that opens a door for them instead of slamming a door on them. Why has Jesus been interacting this way? Any of it. I mean, think about this. Jesus comes and lets them tell the story first. Why? I mean, he could have just come up to him and said, It's me. It's Jesus. Raised from the dead. Let me tell you about the implications of that. Instead, he lets them tell the story first. Why is he doing that? Is it because he's really curious about the opinion of the average man on the street? What do they say about who Jesus is, about his life and ministry? Is it because he needed a public opinion poll? Is it because he really wondered how much the disciples actually understood and he needed to find out? No, you see, Jesus lets them tell this story for their benefit and not for his. He asks them to lay their version of this story, the Jesus story, on the table because he knows that this is a way for them to lay their hearts on the table so that they might all see what's really going on. It's not because Jesus needs to see this, but because these two disciples need to see their own hearts laid out on the table. And the way he responds, maybe he means this. You've been so busy trying to fit me into your story. The story that you're trying to tell about your own life. The story that you're trying to create for your own life. The story where you are at the center and I am a means to your own ends. And maybe Jesus is saying, because you are doing that, you can't hear the story that I am telling The story that I am telling about my life and how your life fits into my story and not the other way around. Now, where is Jesus for us challenging the story that we are telling? The one about us being at the center and Jesus being a helpful accessory. How do we know when we're doing that? How about this? Where in your life right now are you frustrated, maybe even downright angry, at the way your life is turning out, the way it's unfolding, the way it's spinning? Now, I'm not simply talking about what we all experience when things go wrong and are hard, when we are hurt and we are sad. That's true for all of us. But where in your life are you not simply saying that's hard and that hurts, but rather this is hard and this is the end of the story. This is the end of hope. This is difficult, and therefore this will become the interpretive center for the rest of my life. This thing is going to color everything else about my life. This is broken, and therefore it defines everything for me. This is not the way I want things to be, and Jesus, even if he exists, has profoundly let me down. These men felt profoundly let down by Jesus And Jesus says to us the same thing he says to these two disciples. Who is most qualified to tell your story? You or me? And whose story is it? And who stands at the center of this story? You or me? He challenges their telling of the story, and then he goes on to retell the story himself. He says, not only are the events of the last three days not a derailment of the story, verse 26, they are exactly what had to happen. He says, this is what had to happen, and this is what Scripture said had to happen. And he tells them the story in two different ways. One, he tells them from the Scriptures, which for them is the Old Testament. When Jesus says, you want to hear about my story, let me walk you through the pages of the Old Testament and tell you. We see this in verse 27. And then if you look ahead at verses 44 through 47, when Jesus is with a larger group of disciples, he does the very same thing for them. He takes them back to the Bible and says, let me tell you my story. He talks about the law, he says, let's look at the law of Moses, the prophets, and then 44 through 47 adds the Psalms. This, this was a shorthand way of talking about the whole Old Testament. The law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, the whole book, he says, is about me. If you look at, page, at verse 45, when he's at this later meeting with the disciples, it says that he opens their minds to understand the scriptures. Verse 27 and verse 46, what's he saying? The Old Testament is about Jesus. Here's what he says, that the Christ should suffer, that he'd rise on the third day from the dead, that repentance and forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. Verse 46, Jesus says that is what your Bible is about. That is what the whole Bible is about from cover to cover. You've got to know one thing about the disciples. For them, their problem was not that they had not read the Bible. Okay, their problem wasn't that they just didn't have enough information or just hadn't spent enough time studying. They knew their Bible much better than most of us do. They knew all the facts. They knew the books. But what Jesus says is you have missed the very point that gives coherence to the whole thing. Jesus says if you want to understand the Bible... He says, you want to understand your scriptures, they are about me. They all point to me. The story is about me. Now, this one point deserves a sermon all its own, which I'm not going to preach today, another time. But the point for us today is that when we read scripture, Jesus invites us to read as Christians, which means that we read with our eyes on Jesus, who stands at the center of the whole story. In Scripture, we really do find Jesus, and that's where Jesus takes them. You want to see me? Come here. Now, the second way he shows himself to them, second way he tells them the Easter story, the resurrection story, he tells them with a picture. He tells them with performance art, with a Wolfgang Leib-like experiential punch. What does he do? He sits down with them to a meal, and he blesses it, and he breaks the bread, And he gives it to them. And the lights come on. And they say, this is Jesus. What was he doing? Does it remind you of another meal that Jesus shared with his disciples just a few days before? When he then also took bread and broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he chooses that dramatic moment as he breaks the bread with them to show them himself. First part of Jesus' story, he tells them the story from Scripture. Second, the way he tells them is he tells them in the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread that we still share together. Now, what happens to them when they hear Jesus tell his story? when they start to walk away from their version of the story and start to embrace Jesus' version, three things happen to them in verses 31 through 33. First thing, verse 31, it says that their eyes are opened and they recognize Jesus. If you you look closely, you'll see that verse 31 is a reversal of verse 16. Verse 16 says that their eyes were kept from recognizing Jesus. And he comes back to the same words. Now their eyes are open and they see Jesus. They recognize him. See, they'd been seeing Jesus all along at one level. There he was physically in front of them. They'd been seeing him, but they didn't see him. And now they both see Jesus and for the first time see him. And then Jesus chooses this moment to vanish. Why? Why now? Because now that they see Jesus... They don't have to see Jesus, right? See him and didn't see him, see him and see him and see him. Now now they really see Jesus. He chooses this moment to show himself to them. First thing is they see him. Second thing, verse 32, their hearts are now on fire. Listen to what they said. Did not our hearts burn within us while he opened us the scriptures? See, when Jesus finds them, what does he say about them? You are slow of heart. And when he leaves, what what has happened to them? They are people with hearts that have been ignited, that are now ablaze with recognition and understanding and amazement and wonder at the story Jesus is telling them. The story has come together for them. They've been given a whole new interpretation of the story by Jesus himself. You see, they began their journey with despair and disillusionment. They had a lot of the facts, but they'd arranged them in the wrong order. They'd come up with the wrong conclusion. They'd come up with the wrong interpretation. They were telling a story of defeat. And Jesus comes and tells them a story of victory. And now that they know what Jesus is all about and the story that Jesus is telling, they now see everything in a whole new light. Third thing, we see that because their lives were turned around, both literally and metaphorically. They began the scene walking away from Jerusalem, heads held low as they are thinking about the defeat, and they end this story walking away from dead-end Emmaus and back to Jerusalem, the site of Jesus' resurrection, because now they have a story worth telling. And they're going to find the rest of the disciples to tell them that story. They have a life now, a reality that changes everything for them and that changes everything for us. Because this is what Jesus came to do for us, to turn us around, to take disillusioned, confused, even defiant people like us and give us a whole new story. One that doesn't dead end in our sin and failure, one that doesn't implode under the weight of our own egos and our demand that God and everybody else orient themselves around us as if we're the star at the center of the universe. The resurrection told to us by Jesus tells another story, a better story, a true story, the story of the gospel, the story of God reaching out to us in spite of our sin and rebellion, the story of the Son of God taking flesh, becoming human, taking on our infirmities that we might be healed, bearing our sin that we might be forgiven, dying our death that we might live, and rising from the dead in a physical resurrected body that one day we might rise from the dead in a physical resurrected glorified body as well. To spend eternity in the presence of our God, living the life that we have longed all along to live, a fully authentic, profound human life reconciled at peace with ourselves <laughs> and at peace with each other, and most significantly, at peace with our God. This is the story that Jesus tells these two men at Easter. And this is the story that Jesus tells us this Easter. Let's pray. Lord Jesus,